from darkness unto light lead us from death to immortality om peace 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 good morning and namaste everybody today the brave few who have gathered here <laughs> are to be congratulated because uh, this is probably one of the greatest biggest busiest events of um new york the new york marathon and it's right here it's starting right here so all the roads are blocked i'm sure some of you at least had a hard time getting here um i went out in the morning i asked the cops at both ends and they said we'll let people in if they walk in uh, but no cars um and i told them that there's this temple here on 34 west so you let people in who are coming to the temple and they said yeah we can do that <laughs> and um the new york marathon i don't know how many of you know this but this event is being sponsored by an indian company the tcs tata consultancy services and it has an interesting connection with this place you know how swami vivekananda who founded the vedanta society of new york when he uh, when he came to the united states on the ship he met tata jamshed ji tata and uh, who was on his way to the united states also and this was before swami vivekananda was so well known but tata obviously found him to be an intriguing and remarkable young monk so he engaged him in conversation and swami vivekananda told him that india needs not only business and industry but also research in fundamental science imagine a monk in those days late 19th century telling a businessman that we need uh, scientists years later tata wrote to swami vivekananda who by that time was very well known was in belur math uh, he wrote that you remember we met on the ship and you told me about starting an institute for research in fundamental science in india and i'm really taken by that idea and i'm going to start this institute and i cannot think of anybody who would be more fit to be a director of this institute than yourself <laughs> and swami vivekananda of course uh, he, he couldn't accept that but uh, that letter is still there and that institute was eventually set up uh, after tata's death actually uh, it's the well known indian institute of science in uh, bangalore i mean any group of indian professionals you meet anywhere one or two would have studied there i don't know if there's anybody in this uh, there is somebody there <laughs> yes <laughs> yes yes so you see inevitably there will be somebody who has studied there or knows somebody who studied there so this they set it up and i was just thinking if you look at the the institutes of technology the iits um some of them were founded by graduates of the indian institute of science which used to be called the tata institute in those days in bangalore so it seeded the it uh, created the ground for the technological revolution in india uh, all these big institutes came up later on 
by scientists trained in the Indian Institute of Science. And these IITs then later powered what is called India's IT revolution, giving birth to uh, this uh, whole generation of computer scientists, computer engineers, and companies including Tata's own Tata Consultancy Services. And that ends up sponsoring the New York Marathon here. It's, uh, <laughs> it's completing the circle, I think. It's very interesting and wonderful to think about it. These pioneers, Tata, Swami Vivekananda, more than 100 years ago, a vision that they had. And you can see how it's coming to fruition, not only in India, but across the world. Now, what we will do today is we'll take some questions from the internet audience, which have been collected and collated by our wonderful team here, and also some questions from the live audience present here. So I'll first ask Diane to read out a question from, from the internet audience. Then I'll ask you, get ready with your questions, raise your hand, I'll call upon you, come here and ask your question. Yes, Swami, the first question is from Shuda Kuti, who asks, Swamiji, I have a question related to Chidabhasa, the reflected consciousness and its relationship to pure consciousness. Does the Chidabhasa go with the Jivatman after its death? Or upon attaining enlightenment, enlightenment, does it cease to exist? The relationship between reflected consciousness and pure consciousness. Uh, one name we can give to pure consciousness is also Sakshi, the witness consciousness. And uh, these terms are found, for example, in the text Drigdrishya Viveka, which is one of my favorite texts. So, it's a good question, and it's worth analyzing this. First of all, what are, what are these terms? What do they mean? We are, according to Advaita Vedanta, awareness, consciousness. In Sanskrit, many words. Chit, Chaitanya, Sakshi. We are that. Now that consciousness is, so to say, reflected, reflected, I will give, pardon these air quotes, but reflected within quotes, in the mind. Um, and that's what makes the mind feel aware. And the awareness that we actually feel right now is called, this, is called the reflected uh, consciousness or reflected awareness. Right now we all feel aware and that is the reflected awareness. And that awareness shines in the mind, reveals our thoughts, feelings, perceptions, emotions, whatever is going on in the mind, and also uh, lights up our senses. And that's why we feel, uh, you know, even this seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, all of these feel conscious, aware. And the body too, the body feels aware. And that awareness, feeling of awareness stops at the skin. Outside the body, we don't feel that I am this awareness outside the body, no. But only at the skin. So, what is this awareness? It is the reflected consciousness, the chidabhasa, lighting up the mind, the senses, uh, and the body. And this is what actually we, we normally experience as awareness. But this is not what Vedanta is talking about. Vedanta is talking about uh, pure consciousness, which is reflected in the mind and body as reflected consciousness. Now, what is the distinction and does this reflected consciousness cease to exist after death? So the distinction is this. One good way of understanding is would be the distinction between moonlight and sunlight. 
moonlight and sunlight. Are they different or are they the same? Well, depends. They are the same in one sense. Once we know a little bit of astronomy, we know a little bit of science, we know that. It is the sunlight reflected from the moon which we see as moonlight, which we call moonlight at night. So literally it's the same. Uh, for example, if the sunlight were not there, there wouldn't be any moonlight either. The light which is reflected from the moon is, belongs to the sun and without the sun there wouldn't be any moonlight. So, in the same way, without pure consciousness there wouldn't be any reflected consciousness either. Without Sakshi there wouldn't be the Chidabhasa. In Sanskrit Sakshi, witness, Chidabhasa, reflected consciousness. So without the Sakshi there wouldn't be any Chidabhasa. Just like without sunlight there wouldn't be any moonlight. But, there's also a distinction. What distinction? At night, at night, we must admit that we are unable to use or benefit from sunlight directly. Without the moon, for example, on um, new moon nights or when the, you know, depending on the phase of the moon, you'll see the moonlight increases and decreases. Uh, it's the moonlight which we use for, suppose, in a dark, um, you know, there's no electricity or anything. It's the moonlight which lights up, which, which we can use to see things at night. Exactly like that. Our daily transactions in this world are due to the reflected consciousness. It, without the reflected consciousness, we wouldn't be able to do this, what we are doing right now. Also, just like the moonlight, the phases of the moon increase and decrease the moonlight, the amount of light reflected. Similarly, the awareness that we feel in the mind is a limited awareness and subject to coming and going, changing. Um, I mean, when you fall asleep, it seems to disappear. When you are tired and dull, it seems to be, you don't seem to be as keen as before. The quality of the reflected awareness depends on the mind. Just as the quality of any reflection depends on the reflecting medium. Um, you are sick or tired or sleepy. And you must, you must say that I don't feel as aware as I did when I was alert and after a cup of coffee and so on. So that, that is the reflected consciousness. Reflected consciousness, just like the moonlight, is subject to increasing and decreasing. It's subject to coming and going. And it is the one which is directly useful to us. Right. So this is the distinction. Which one am I? I am actually the pure consciousness. But right now, our condition is, unless we are able to appreciate what is meant by pure consciousness, what is meant by um, the witness consciousness, our condition will be the reflected consciousness, the pure consciousness reflected in the mind, illumining the mind, and in the mind is ignorance about our real nature. So what happens is, I, who am really this pure consciousness, but I'm not at all aware of what I am, I'm not, I don't understand it. This understanding is a function of the mind, and that understanding is not there in the mind. Therefore, in the mind is the solid, unshakable conviction. Yes, I am awareness, but I am awareness in the mind, which is in the body. So I am a body-mind awareness mix-up, a mash-up, so to say. That's what we think of ourselves. Even worse, we may even relegate the awareness to an unimportant thing, you know. We may think of ourselves as embodied minds. I'm just a mind, a person. That's what most people think. Even worse, even worse, not even reflected awareness, not even the mind, I am the body. I'm a body with a mind and some kind of awareness. So you see where, how far we have traversed. And at each level, 
you encounter and you take upon yourself terrible problems. The moment we identify with the mind, reflected consciousness means you have already identified with the mind. Then every problem of the mind is my problem now. Ups and downs in the mind, depression, happiness, unhappiness, passing feelings, they all become mine. I am elated, I am delighted, I am happy, I am miserable. It goes like this. But you are not. You see, the sunlight has actually nothing to do with the problems on the moon. Similarly, you the witness consciousness, you the awareness, unlimited awareness, you really have nothing to do with one particular mind's um, problems, ups and downs. And worse, the body, aging of the body, I am growing old, disease in the body, I am sick. Not, I am the not sick, not old, changeless, clear light of the void, pure awareness, Illumining a mind, illumining a body which is going through these changes of old age and sickness. That's a hugely different thing. Imagine the amount of space it gives you, uh, to, you know, the sense of security it gives you. The sense of peace it will give you in the mind itself. You see, it's security, peace, all of these are in the mind. Lack of security, peace are also in the, are in the mind. So this is the distinction. Now, he asked a couple of questions, specific questions. One question is, does it cease after... Uh, this question was, does it cease after... Um, does it go with the Jivatman after its death? Does it go with the Jivatman after it? That, that was one question. And the other one was... Or upon attaining enlightenment, does it cease to exist? Okay. Does it go with the Jivatman upon its death? If you consider the question itself, the answer is there. The Jivatman, the Jiva, the sentient being, what is it actually? I just described it earlier. You are that limitless consciousness with an apparent limitation of a mind and a reflected consciousness and the body. Now, at death, the body dies. And this mind with its reflected consciousness, that's the one which goes, or in technical terms, transmigrates. Goes to other worlds, other experiences, other bodies, other lives. You, the pure consciousness, uh, does not travel. Because where will it travel? It's the one reality that is. It's, it's the... Um, you know, the screen of the movie on which the movie is playing. There's a lot of traveling going on in the movie. If the screen also decides to travel, then the <laughs> movie will be <laughs> disturbed. It'll be a pretty poor movie then. Pure consciousness is always the same. It doesn't travel. When you say that the uh, going and coming of the Jivatman, the birth and death and transmigration of the Jivatman, it is the mind. More technically, more precisely, the Sukshma Sharira and the Karana Sharira. Sukshma Sharira, subtle body. Karana Sharira, causal body. Causal body is ignorance itself. And the subtle body has, and if you go to Vedantic uh, analysis, it will have 17 parts or 19 parts. The mind, the intellect, the memory, the ego sense, the, um, um, the powers of the senses, powers of the motor organs, the prana, the life forces, all of that together is the subtle body. That's what goes and comes. That's what we call colloquially the ghost. So that uh, the subtle body, that's what goes and comes and has many experiences. Now, you can answer your question. Does the reflected consciousness travel? Yes. Does pure consciousness travel? No. Reflected consciousness travels along with the mind. It's just like I give the example of pots in a garden. The pots are full of water. And one pot maybe develops a crack or a leak. 
and the gardener comes and pours the water out into another pot and discards the broken pot. Now, in each pot, in the water, there will be a little reflected sun. The sun shining up in the sky is reflected in the water in each pot. A tiny little sun, an image, a sparkling little image. That also has a little power of illumination, you know. That travels. If you pour the water out into another pot, that will travel along with the water into the new pot. So the reflected consciousness travels. From that perspective, the sentient being, if the sentient being had an active memory of past birth, would have said, I was there in that life, in that body, with those people. Some people have those experiences. And I am here now with these people in this body. Travels. But Vedanta says even that's not the reality. That's part of the movie. Does it cease after enlightenment? No, after enlightenment you know that you are not the, the reflected consciousness. You begin to see. The, you know what the distinction is? It's like this. You're looking at your face in a mirror. The mirror is like the mind. The reflected face is like reflected consciousness. And your real face, this face, is um, like witness consciousness or pure consciousness. At enlightenment, what happens is, not that the reflected face will disappear. You just realize, I am not that. And there's some delusion, I thought I was this guy. No, I am here. Not there in the mirror. That's the distinction. And that sets you free. Free from all mirrors and all reflected faces. Just this knowledge. It just sets you free means you realize you are always free. So does it cease after enlightenment? No. You cease to identify with it. You cease to think that I am this shining consciousness in the mind. But it does cease when the body-mind ceases. So for example, it ceases every night. When you fall asleep in deep sleep, when the mind is not functioning, mind is absorbed into ajnana or the seed of ignorance in deep sleep, the, uh, there is no active reflected consciousness. It's just like the sun reflected in the pot, in the pool, the water in the pot. At night, the pot is there, the water is there, but there's no reflected sun. Similarly, at night, when the, or when the mind ceases to work, the reflected consciousness also disappears. And from the perspective of the enlightened one, um, who is not supposed to be born or reborn again, does not take on an individual body-mind again. So there will not be an individual reflected consciousness which you can attribute to the enlightened one. But the enlightened one doesn't care. The enlightened one knows that I am this infinite consciousness. Always was, am, will be. Good. Um, can you, does anybody want to ask a question? Yes, come. Um, tell us your name and ask the question. Uh, my humble pronouns to Swamiji. My name is Vinod. I am from Maywood, New Jersey. Uh, I have one question, Swamiji. Uh, what is my swadharma? What is my swadharma? Literally my own duty, my natural duty. Because uh, why this question arises is again and again in Krishna tells Arjuna, follow your swadharma, your, your natural duty, so to say, your, nat your natural dharma. But what is that? I'll give you the traditional answer to that. And I'll tell you also it's uh, mostly useless these days. But it's good to understand what they meant in those days by Swadharma. It was very precise. And we can learn some lessons from th that and maybe try to adapt it to, new, uh, to our times today. As I tell you, you will also notice it isn't of much use right now in our day and time. 
but we can learn some lessons from it okay so what was the answer what was the idea in krishna's time uh, in ancient times in india swadharma had five components so put on your seat belts <laughs> we are going to <laughs> it's complex but five components it had five parts um i'll name them first and explain them um ashrama dharma varna dharma varnashrama dharma sadharana dharma vishesha dharma and sadharana dharma so ashrama dharma the stage of life the stage of life means traditionally we understood the stage of life as studentship brahmacharya householder life grihastha a uh, retired uh, life uh, vanaprastha literally it means the forest dwelling or going to the forest and then um the sanyasa the monastic life and that was actually for everybody these were supposed to be natural to stages in life and there's a great deal of wisdom in them actually um there's a time when we develop ourselves physically mentally equip ourselves so that's the brahmacharya life and there is a certain set of duties which were prescribed which were natural which were thought to be natural to a person who is in school or college that would be your dharma if you are a student or if you are in that that uh, state of life that stage of life and then it was thought natural that you grow up and you set, take your position in society you marry start a family have a job uh, a career contribute to society build up your life um grihastha and there was a set of ways of you know what what is right and what is wrong what is proper and improper for a grihastha and then you would naturally progress to you know as children got up and um, grew up and and left home and you sort of retired out of your job uh, you would enter a new stage of life where you would withdraw from so much engagement in in um, in worldly life and uh, begin a more serious quest in in spiritual life and that was the meaning of vanaprastha the forest dweller you'd still husband and wife would still be together but they are no longer engaged in family life they were more like spiritual companions and they're getting ready for the you know soul focus on the spiritual goal of life all throughout all these remember all of these are meant for ultimately enlightenment that was the beautiful idea you say who told you all this that's meant for enlightenment i have it on the authority of shankaracharya itself himself for example in taittiriya upanishad there is a question suppose brahman does not exist suppose there is no ultimate reality suppose we are not brahman um what would be the consequence of that he says one consequence immediately would be that the entire arrangement of society as we have known it the dharma in in the stages of life the dharma according to your professions and place in society all of this would be meaningless why meaningless because he says they are all meant he says brahma pratipatti artham tesham they are all meant for enlightenment for realizing that you are brahman what a stunning statement and it's not uh, arobindo in years later he would say that it's not just you know like a formal setup in hindu society which had this idea you have to realize brahman and therefore um, we have arranged society in this way it seems to be overly formal and strict there's just a paradigm but he says actually life itself is yoga 
It doesn't have to be ancient India, don't have to be Hindu in Krishna's time. Wherever you are, if you are a sentient being living your life, basically knowingly or unknowingly, you are on that path. You are trying to achieve infinity. You are trying to achieve what you truly are. Seek, seek, God, whatever you call it. So, Varna Dharma, that was one. The second, the Ashrama Dharma, sorry. So, four ashramas. Then finally, after the, that period of preparation, even then, husband and wife would go their own ways. They would become monks. Sannyasi, sannyasi. It's actually formally or informally, but their life would be like that. Only dedicated to God-realization at the end of their life. So that was the uh, structure for stages of life, ashrama. The second component was varnadharma. Varnadharma meant that, uh, you know, what is your profession and what is your um, natural makeup? What is your position in society? So somewhere... Brahmins, um, which were suited to education and uh, you know religious duties, the priestcraft and so on, the priestly life and so on. The others were kshatriyas, warriors, administrators. You know, today you would say presidents, CEOs, and so on. Um, the third were um, the uh, the business class, the trading class, uh, the people who carried on the business of of society itself. Most people, so that would be the vaishyas. And then the, they were the laborers, the working class, the shudras. And this was a division based not on stage of life, but, but on profession. And that profession was based on your mental makeup. At one time, not in Krishna's time, he clearly says that these are uh, divisions based on guna karma, your mental makeup and your activities in society. At one time in ancient India, they were frozen into the castes. Uh, the four castes and innumerable subdivisions of the castes. And then that led to, like any frozen static system, it led to abuses and power play and privilege and battles between for position and privilege and enormous problems which continue down to this age till today. You can see uh, Indian society is sort of riven and fractured on these lines. But the original idea was this and I've, you have it on Krishna's own words. And that kind of division of castes is... Um, is sort of natural to to humanity. You find it in every society. What you don't find is that frozen, ossified system which you find peculiarly in India. Um, you know, a beautiful argument against this um, Mill, James Mill, John Stuart Mill's father, in the British Parliament. There was a beautiful argument that um, at that time there was a debate on giving rights to women. And, and and of course, all the debate was entirely among men in parliament. So the, they were arguing, one group was saying, absolutely not. The place of the woman is at home and not in the field or in the battlefield or in the, in the place of uh, commerce and business. And someone argued that the nature of the lion is to eat meat and the nature of the deer is to eat grass. Then Mill stood up. Beautiful argument. I love this. He said, if it be true that God has made the lion to eat meat and the deer to eat grass, then man need not make laws about it. What should you do? That you should give freedom. Let them do whatever they are. If the very nature of the lion is to eat meat and the nature of the deer is to eat grass, they will do that if there is freedom. On top of that, if you are making a law, the lion should only eat meat and the deer should only eat grass, there is mischief involved there. There is mischief behind it. And of course things did not change immediately, but over time it changed. Anyway, the idea was there are certain distinctions in our makeup 
and certain distinctions in our professions that led to the uh, varna dharma then you have a combination of varnashrama dharma like a matrix put them together are you a student yes are you a brahmin student or a kshatriya student or a vaishya student then then your duties your dharma will differ accordingly so for example krishna is speaking to arjuna now put him on the matrix arjuna is what according to uh, ashrama he is a grihastha a householder and he is a kshatriya a warrior so a warrior householder has a certain set of do's and don'ts a certain set of natural duties that is his swadharma that's the third component varnashrama dharma you see how he put it's very elegant and also pretty useless today <laughs> but it's very elegant um, you put it together you get varnashrama dharma fourth vishesha dharma vishesha dharma means particular special duties which you take on so arjuna is not only a, 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 a householder is not only a warrior but he is also the general in the pandava army for the time being you are the commander of this army i remember myself how i learned this lesson um, one of the first administrative duties i got um, in india when i was in the monastery was was a Uh, a college for training teachers a teacher training college by the way i was awful at it yes, but uh i was made the head of that the, they call it the principal the principal of that and i was a very young monk and immature i would i would say the person who preceded me was a householder he was a principal of for 30 years he was very senior gentleman and he handed it over to me big contrast to this young boy <laughs> and i said look he he made me sit in the chair i still remember that day so now you are the head of this institute and i said look i don't care all this principal business i am a monk and that's my identity and then he gave me a scolding he said no swami at that time i was a brahmachari actually he said no maharaj that is not right you are a monk you are settled in your monastic uh, life that's wonderful that's great but on top of that you are the head the captain of this ship and so there are extra responsibilities that you are go- you're going to take up because you have assumed the role so don't forget that you can't just say i'm a monk i don't care about all of this and that's true if you see in human resource management for example what's important is the roles people take up if you take up a particular role then you have certain uh, dharma go- which goes with that role if you're a manager of a certain department so you have a certain dharma going so that's called vishesha dharma special unique to that particular post that particular time in life for example so you have a role there once you have accepted it you have to play the role then the last one the last one is sadharana dharma sadharana dharma means general duties as a human being as a civilized person as a good person you have the dharma of being non-violent you have the dharma of having to be have uh, having integrity truth you have the dharma of self-control life of self-control uh, actually generally if you break it up it comes out as um, the ahimsa um, satya brahmacharya asteya aparigraha ahimsa non-violence um, satya is truth in thought word and deed brahmacharya is literally celibacy but it's it's actually control over uh, all kinds of sensual desires and then um asteya non stealing aparigraha non acceptance of gifts and there are reasons for all of this 
but they are all modified according to the other four um, you know the components of swadharma all right summing up four uh, five components ashrama dharma varna dharma varna ashrama dharma vishesha dharma sadharana dharma to some extent all these still apply and you can see the wisdom in all of that and take a look only some things have changed the ideas of family life have changed uh, with changing understanding and breakdown of the marriage system and all of that changing understanding of gender for example <laughs> in this dna especially here um then professions have changed tremendously tremendously peter drucker points out the management guru points out that we have tremendous choice 200 years ago for thousands of years um, until 100 to 200 years ago you would live where you were born in most cases unless you were an adventurer or a pirate or something like that you would do the job of your parents did only if you were a man for women they always always did family and womanly things and that was for thousands of years you would eat the food that your community ate you would marry into somebody in your community you would speak the language that was spoken there you would hardly go a little further than the place you were born in that was the life of the majority of humanity for thousands of years now he says in the last 100 years what has happened and it's accelerating now he says peter drucker we are born in one place educated in another place work in another place live and settle down maybe retire in another place almost inevitably you marry out of your community um, you eat food and dress um, in ways that has almost nothing to do with your place or community of uh, origin and the job you change your job so many times in so many different ways the they always say the job you are trained for in college that job doesn't exist <laughs> and what you are trained for in college actually what the training you get becomes obsolete when by the time you leave <laughs> college so all these things are huge and new that's why to some extent this swadharma thing is uh, you have to think about it yourself uh, but it's important to go with the grain of one's makeup and take decisions or oh, what does peter drucker say therefore he says therefore the importance of decisions is overwhelming there is a small gap of time window of time in which young people get to make certain decisions about their education about their jobs careers about their partners in life about the choice of lifestyle and so on and it's not infinite each decision will have enormous impact on one limited lifetime so the importance of decision is very very uh, is is very is very significant now one guideline is swadharma what decision i'll take and remember the big picture the whole thing whether you like it or not understand it or not is meant for god realization or enlightenment that is the purpose of human life that could be the pole star de- depending on which you decide what you are what you're going to what decisions you will take in every respect Okay, but it's a good question. It's a very practical question. Thank you. Can we have the next question? Yes. Uh, this is from Sagnik Roy Chowdhury. If pure consciousness is the witness, Sakshi, then who is the knower? Is I the ego, the knower? How do I understand the difference? What is the difference between the knower and the witness? Another very good question. What's the difference between knower and witness? It's a very philosophical question, but it if you're on the path of Advaita Vedanta, this is something that one must grasp early on. There is a big difference. 
Difference between what? The witness and the knower. Let me introduce the Sanskrit terms. Witness, Sakshi. Knower, Pramata. There are these Sanskrit terms. Brahma means knowledge. Pramata, the knower. And Pramana, the instrument of knowledge. Prameya, the object of knowledge. Don't, don't get confused in all of that. You don't have to deal with all of that. But just know. Knower means Pramata. And we are all knowers. Uh, knowers in what sense? If you are seeing something, hearing, smelling, tasting something, um, you know, inferring, in whichever way you gather knowledge, you are a knower. And we are all knowers. Now what is the distinction between this and the witness consciousness? The witness consciousness, Sakshi. Use what I just said earlier about the witness consciousness and the reflected consciousness. It is the witness consciousness alone which shines upon the mind as, as the reflected consciousness. And the mind is lit up by this reflected awareness. And then the mind thinks and also deploys instruments of knowledge. What are the instruments of knowledge? The five senses. Use, uh, for seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Also, other instruments of knowledge. Anumana, which means inference. So, inference is a big instrument of knowledge which we use for in science, for example, and in, in any kind of rational thinking. Something that you don't actually see. You see smoke rising and you infer there must be fire and the fire truck goes there. You didn't actually see the fire, but you saw the smoke. Smoke and inferred fire. So that's inference. And science works like that. Data and all that, you infer things. Um, and there are other sources of knowledge. Summing up, pure consciousness, Sakshi, which is pure consciousness, or Sakshi, which is the witness consciousness, the same thing. That's who we really are all the time. We don't know that. Reflected in the mind as a reflected consciousness, that reflected consciousness now lighting up the mind becomes the knower. Using the mind and the senses becomes the knower. Varieties of the knower are the seer, the seer, I'm mangling English now, seer and hearer and taster, whatever you call it. Uh, so that's the knower, pramata. The knower is the jiva, the sentient being. We are that. They are not too different physically. Ultimately, just as moonlight is nothing but sunlight, the knower is also nothing but the sakshi, the witness consciousness. It's the witness consciousness alone, you alone. Who's the knower? Don't uh, get confused with all these terms. Simple answer, I am the knower. Who's the ultimate reality? Witness consciousness. I am the ultimate reality, witness consciousness. But how, do, how? then what's the distinction? The distinction is, I the ultimate reality, witness consciousness, Atman, Brahman, Sakshi, whatever, so many names, pure awareness. I channeled through this, reflected in this system of body, mind, sensory, or, you know, this device, I become the knower. What's the problem? The problem is, I the knower is very clear to me. To me the knower. I'm very clear that I am the knower. But I am the witness consciousness, Sakshi, Atman, Brahman, that's not at all known to me. So, I, the knower, have ignorance about my real nature. I, the knower, will now deploy the knowledge of Vedanta to remove the ignorance about my real self. That's what's going on here. After enlightenment, what happens? Am I the witness consciousness or the knower? 
you are the witness consciousness always where you just now know that you are the witness consciousness and that makes an enormous difference do you still continue to be the knower yes you can deploy the knower for ev- the purpose it is you know for seeing hearing smelling tasting everything goes on as it was earlier you just know that you are the limitless awareness now shining through this one body mind and seeing this thing hearing this thing thinking that understanding that remembering this forgetting that all the activities of the knower still go on the pramatha still goes on the whole distinction the witness consciousness does not come or go the knower arises and disappears when you fall asleep the knower goes away every night uh, but the witness consciousness is always constant the witness consciousness is not limited by the body mind the knower is limited by the body mind the witness consciousness um, is one there's only one witness consciousness there's only one atman or brahman one uh, one unlimited awareness the knower is many we are all separate knowers and we are distinct knowers because we are equipped with distinct bodies and minds geeta krishna says avivaktam cha bhuteshu vibhaktam iva cha sthitam undivided in all beings there's one being here which is undivided in all beings and you are really that but it appears as if divided in so many beings and then interacting with each other is literally god playing with god here so that's the distinction between sakshi and pramata we take one more question this is from raji i'll come um, to you rajdeep da from kolkata in yeah. india uh, shri ramakrishna says that he who was rama and he who was krishna is in this body as ramakrishna but not in the vedantic sense Maharaj where does the greatest divine incarnation Sri Ramakrishna stand in the triad of Brahman Shakti Jiva and Jagat hmm. So I think he means Brahman Shakti together yes this so, uh, Brahman Shakti that's one that's God and uh, Jiva us and Jagat this world where does he stand in this So he's just quoting what Sri Ramakrishna said more than once he told Swami Vivekananda that he who was rama he who was krishna is in this body rama krishna but not in your vedantic sense so what does he mean there and where does he stand in all of this so what he means there is that i am an incarnation of god an avatar this is a unique phenomenon what is the incarnation of god uh, what is god after all a little bit of vedantic theory here it is pure awareness pure consciousness atman brahman which we are talking about that is the reality and then that appears as this cosmos that itself appears as the cosmos it is a screen which appears as the movie right now that reality pure consciousness atman brahman in association with this enormous cosmos which appears in it is god brahman plus the appearance is god i'm giving a sort of uh, non conventional definition but this is drawn from the traditional definition what's the traditional definition of god or saguna brahman in vedanta in vedanta sar for example you'll find samashti agyana upahita chaitanyam or maya upahita chaitanyam consciousness plus maya consciousness channeled uh, channeled through maya is god ishvara saguna brahman or what he calls brahman and shakti so that's god and what are we we are the same pure consciousness but identified with one part of the appearance 
reflected in one mind and one body and saying, I am this, not all of this. Who is saying this? Actually, ultimately, and the knower is saying, we can use all the terminology which has been developed nicely. <laughs> so the knower is saying this, but beyond the knower is that one radiance. And I am this one body only, uh, one person. So this, we are, this is called Jiva, sentient being. Jiva, Ishwara, Jagat. Sentient being, God, universe. All are appearances of and in one unlimited awareness, which you are, actually. You're not part of that. You are that. You, as the body-mind, you are a part of the cosmos. The cosmos is the vast and you are a tiny part of it. But you, as pure consciousness, you are not even the whole of it. There's no whole and part there. It's just that one reality. Now, this consciousness, in association with the totality of appearance, one word we can use for that is God. Now, God, um, according to certain religions, Christianity, Hinduism, for example, especially Christianity and Hinduism, we have this idea of incarnation. Christianity only wants Jesus, and in Hinduism, multiple incarnations are possible. There, what happens is God further incarnates into this cosmos with the full awareness, I am God. And also, ultimately, I am the Absolute. But appears as an individual, like amongst us. How is it different from us? In many, many ways. In Gita, Krishna points out how the incarnation is different from the rest of us. For example, we are, being float we are floating along the river of karma. We don't decide to come into this particular life. I don't remember when anybody gave me a choice. You know, fill up the forms. You know, you know, form one, parent selection. Form two, where will you be born? Kind of body you want? No, that would have been nice, but no, nobody ever asked me. It's past karma. We are being, we are being, we are being um, whirled along in this stream of torrent of karma. Of course, ultimately, we are the ones who have generated this karma. But God, when God comes as incarnation, is not born out of karma. God has no past karma to force to, um, God to take incarnation. It's born out of, God comes, incarnates out of compassion. For helping us uh, towards enlightenment. So that's the whole purpose of the incarnation. And not just individually helping us or you or me, but also the whole of society. The incarnation also uplifts society. Brings religion or fresh religion. Fresh spirituality into this tired old world. So this is the uh, purpose of the incarnation. And there are many differences. Incarnation is ever liberated. Incarnation doesn't have to struggle for liberation. Incarnation is here for saving humanity, for teaching us and so on and so forth. So this is, these are the, this is the doctrine of incarnation. Some religions don't accept incarnation. Well, that's fine. So this is avatar. And... Sri Ramakrishna is telling Narendranath that such a phenomenon is again there in this world at this time and this is what you see as the Ramakrishna avatar. Now, why not in your Vedantic sense? See, in a strictly Vedantic sense, everything is an appearance of the Absolute. God himself is an appearance of the Absolute. The universe is an appearance of the Absolute. We are an appearance of the Absolute. In one sense, are we not all avatars then? Everyone is an avatar, an appearance of the Absolute, in that sense, in a very in general Advaitic sense. So that's what he wanted to preclude. Suppose Vivekananda in his strict non-duality would have thought, 
Ramakrishna is an incarnation. Well, that's all, that's all right. Everybody is an incarnation. That's fine. What's, what's so special about it? No, Ramakrishna wanted to say, not in that sense. Not that way. It's a hugely special sense. Even there also, ultimately, what difference does it make to most of us? You see, <laughs> I this funny story about a senior monk told me. He was an attendant to Swami Premeshanandaji, who was a disciple of the Holy Mother. And Swami Premeshanandaji used to often catch hold of people and tell them this great secret I want to reveal to you. He was obviously overcome with the significance of this tremendous secret. More than you are Brahman and all of that, much more than that, higher than that. So one day this monk told me, Swami Premeshananda was quite old and sick at that time. He said, look, I have to tell you something. This is great secret I want to tell you. And this monk who was a young novice at that time, he knew, he had heard it so many times. He says, yes, Swami, tell me. No, 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 first you make sure nobody's listening. Is there anybody outside the door? He said, nobody's listening. And then the Swami said, look, I can tell you, Sri Ramakrishna is God himself. He is an incarnation of God. He is an avatara. The God has come as, as an incarnation in this world again. And then uh, this monk said, I told him, yes, yes, I know. <laughs> oh, you know? Yes, I know. And everybody else knows. Oh, they know. Yes, they know. And it doesn't matter. Nobody cares. <laughs> See, for us, these are mostly for these are words. These are interesting ideas and theories. For Swami Prameshananda, for the first time, the reality is dawning. Just in, the incredible reality that we are in such proximity to an incarnation again. And you actually have a picture. Of an incarnation, photographs, documented, uh, you know, daily conversations of an incarnation, the life of an incarnation. If you really, really believe that and you feel that, you may not be a highly developed spiritual seeker like Premishanandaji, but even at our level, if you intensely feel for a moment, literally, God in this form, right here. So that's the meaning of. Uh, Incarnation. Uh, and uh, so, what is the place of Sri Ramakrishna in the triad of Brahman, Shakti, Brahman and Shakti? That's he meant God actually. And sentient beings and Jagat. Sri Ramakrishna is an incarnation of that Brahman Shakti in the world, appearing as a Jiva, appearing as a Jiva, not like us, very different from us. Sri Ramakrishna himself said, What's the difference? The little fish are playing in a pool and the moon is shining there. And the little fish, they feel the, that moon is also one of us. And they are all playing with the moon, the reflected moon. When the morning comes and the moon disappears, they think, alas, where did it go? That wonderful fish. That round glowing fish <laughs> with us. It's a very beautiful example. That this is an extraordinary appearance, but still an appearance. Not really part of this mundane world. And it's there for a period of time. And it gives you something and it will disappear forever again. Until the next incarnation. Yeah. All right. Uh, somebody wanted to ask a question. Yeah. Yes, please come. Yes. Please tell us your name and speak in the microphone. You can take off your mask. Yeah. Pranam Swamiji, I am Lata from Chennai, India. Uh, I want to ask about uh, enlightenment. I understand that uh, this is a uh, I'm not sure whether it is a gradual process or is there a wow moment when an akanda karavritti comes and then you get enlightened 
and then the whole outlook changes of those people who are enlightened that we see so is there a wow moment or is it just a gradual understanding a very good question um is there a sudden moment of a breakthrough often you see the texts <clears throat> speak of that and masters also speak of that or is it a gradual development and a flowering and a fulfillment the answer is both but how let's see how one is there is a sudden breakthrough and uh, that actually happens and all enlightened masters have testified to it it could be a tremendous mystic vision something that is completely transformational it will be a before and after or more specifically in our tradition the advaita vedanta tradition what are we all working towards shravana manana nidhyasana you systematically study uh, the vedantic texts and uh, then you get a clarity about it and the the various doubts which ar- arise along the path those are settled then it becomes a conviction but still there are these contrary tendencies um, which are past conditioning they are overcome by staying with that conviction staying with that conviction many meditation techniques are there nididhyasana you keep doing this till a sudden moment comes when it's real what you have studied understood trying to stay with it it just a sudden breakthrough sudden unveiling not something new appearing before you it was you realize it was always there you always feel, how did, did i not see it always this was so there's only one reality appearing as so many and i am that one reality as is everybody else and that solves all problems from the perspective of that reality so that immediately the, the effects are multiple one is that will never if if it's a real breakthrough the khandakara vritti it will never go away the khandakara vritti itself will disappear because it's a part of the appearance but the clarity that you are brahman and that you are brahman that fact will never go away it's always there not that you are always thinking about it it's always continuously available effortlessly so forever so that's that's a sign that it doesn't go away um it also from that perspective all your problems are solved forever you know clearly yeah it's all right from that perspective it will not solve the problems in the uh, you know the body your relationship problems your financial problems your money your mental issues it will not solve those but from that perspective you see all this is fine it's not it's it's unimportant it's like motes of dust shine you know floating around in the morning ray of sunshine good it's all all good if you settled all this dust another <laughs> cloud would come over would replace it and this you are no longer trying to change this setup into that setup any setup is fine and of course in your day to day practical life you will continue to do whatever you're doing you'll do your job you will take care of your responsibilities and probably you'll be able to do it much better because you are at peace for the first time what you lose is i always say the lose is the right to grumble and what are you grumbling about from that perspective everything is fine all right so this is the sudden breakthrough it happens now what about the gradual thing the gradual thing is connected with the mind why is it gradual because the mind is part of maya and maya whatever is part of maya is subject to cause and effect so if you want to transform the mind you have to set in motion a set of causes 
causes here, I'm speaking very abstract terms philosophically, but practically these are spiritual practices. What are the problems in the mind and the body? Restlessness is a problem. So uh, focus, meditation will be the practice. Uh, impurities, a cloud of desires in the mind and um, uh, are a problem. They have to be set right. Uh, so all of this, moral, ethical training, training in focus and meditation, basically transforming the person into something like a saint. That which you see in the spiritual practitioners all over the world. That starts long before the breakthrough. It may have started, if you're interested in spiritual life, we we feel sure that it started in earlier births. We have been pursuing this for a long time. So it may have started long ago. And slowly as we transform ourselves, life itself teaches us. From immoral to moral, from moral to spiritual. And this transformation is going on slowly. At one point, why is this necessary? Without this transformation, that enlightenment breakthrough will not come. It will simply not come. Either one will not take it seriously, this whole religion, spirituality thing does not seem real. Or you take it seriously, but you are not interested. Or you take it seriously and you are interested, but you think it's too difficult for me. It's only for a few specialized people, monks and sages and saints. So all of these are not, uh, these are all because of the impurities of the mind. When the mind is sufficiently purified and one undertakes spiritual practices, one makes the breakthrough. The sign of the breakthrough, one thing is that it's the last birth. This is the end of the game for you. Now, even after the breakthrough, there may be a process of maturation. So all great enlightened souls, you know, you'll notice when they make the breakthrough, they stay with it for a long time. In some cases, like Sri Ramakrishna, Ramana Maharshi, it's very spectacular. For months together, they're actually deep in samadhi. They're staying with it. It's such a powerful thing, they become absorbed in it. And the whole mind, personality, even body to some extent is transformed for such people. Uh, it may not be so powerful in others, but there is. So before that breakthrough, there's a long process of effort, hard work, um, transformation, personal transformation, ethical transformation, ethical growth, and philosophical, spiritual growth. It's a long process. And then, after the breakthrough, one begins to live that life. And uh, there is also a flowering, a growth. When you, what happens then is you are no longer, the difference is earlier you were seeking. Now you are no longer seeking. You have found it. But you are now expressing it through the body-mind. So if you have found it, expression through body-mind should be instantaneous. No, not so fast. Body-mind is entirely part of maya. Cause and effect has its hold there. You have to express it. You have to live the truth in thought, word and deed. That's why Swami Vivekananda's definition of religion is so wonderful. Short, simple and so deep. Um, religion is the manifestation of the divinity already within us. Notice, he didn't say religion is the breakthrough moment. He didn't say religion is enlightenment about the divinity within us. He said religion is the manifestation of the divinity already within us. In another place he says, my mission in life is simple. can be put in a few words. It is to preach unto humanity their inner divinity and, and how to make it manifest in every movement of life. That and is very important. That and making it manifest in every movement of life is the slow, gradual process of uh, unfoldment. Before the breakthrough, that gradual process requires work, hard work. 
after the breakthrough, that gradual process continues. If you put in that person who has that insight, if that person puts it into practice, it will be faster. But it's inevitable. Even if that person does nothing, it will keep working. Because that clarity, once it has dawned, it's, it is unmistakable. It will affect his or her every thought, word, action. It will all fall in line slowly. But then why not make, it, uh, make an effort to manifest it? Sri Ramakrishna's disciples, the direct disciples who are here, they all got that breakthrough, enlightenment in various forms during Sri Ramakrishna's lifetime itself. They were you know, specially privileged to live with one like this. But then after Sri Ramakrishna's Mahasamadhi, they, put, they went in for intense spiritual practices, incredibly hard, difficult spiritual practices, you know, meditation. And why? What were they doing? They've already found it. So when they were asked, Swami Brahmananda was asked, Swami Shivananda was asked, they said, what he has given us, we're trying to make it our own. That's the process of soaking yourself in it, being centered in it, making it effortless. It is actually effortless. What we are is effortlessly us. But the mind is not convinced. The mind has its own little games to play. I have now slipped away. Yes, yes, I had that uh, uh, realization of Brahman, but now I have somehow slipped away. It happens. That's a trick of the mind. You have not slipped away. You cannot slip away. You have no choice there. You are that reality. It's like the clay pot saying that uh, I have slipped away from being the clay. I was the clay once in a while, but I have to do a lot of meditation before I'm clay again. No. But here, so these are core truths. They are very valuable. You have asked... I mean, I know her, she is a committed non-dualist, studying under some of the best masters in India now. But, uh, so the, you have asked a very core question. But surround it with spiritual practice. It's always better to be safe. Um, one Tibetan Buddhist manual says, when you attain that breakthrough, it says that it is true that you are that reality. They call it the clear light of the void. You are that um, wherever you are, in the city or the forest. But never miss an opportunity for a retreat. It is true. You now see, you and your guru are one reality. But never fail to show reverence to the guru. It is true. All beings are ever liberated. But never pass up an opportunity to help the suffering. Very beautiful. Some six or seven... So they are meant as a warning and a guide for those who are advanced spiritual practitioners. Very good question, Dadaji. Thank you so much. Can we have one more question there? I'll, yeah, I'll come to you next. This is from Lakshabir Debnath. Swamiji, what is Shraddha, which Nachiketa is said to have possessed? You have said in your lectures that, is it, that it is one of the qualities of a student who wishes to pursue Vedanta. Can you please elaborate on the true meaning of Shraddha? Is it just faith? Shraddha. Um, the reference is to the story of Nachiketa um, in Katopanishad. And since we are doing the Katopanishad now in our weekly classes, I guess this question comes from there. So Shraddha means faith, literally. It's not an adequate translation. Faith, confidence, self-confidence. Alright, so let me give you the direct definition of Shraddha as it is traditionally defined and then we will expand upon that for a little while. 
वट्स द डिरेक्ट डेफिनेशन आस्तिक्य बुद्धि आस्तिक्य बुद्धि बुद्धि मीन्स द अंडरस्टैंडिंग आस्तिक्य मीन्स इट इज द कन्विक्शन दैट इट इज सो वट वी माइट कॉल फेथ दैट गॉड एग्जिस्ट्स फॉर एग्जाम्पल दैट वुड बी अ ग्रेट एग्जाम्पल ऑफ श्रद्धा द फीलिंग द काइंड ऑफ इंटिव फीलिंग दैट देर इज समथिंग टू दिस स्पिरिचुअल पैथ there is something when they talk about an ultimate reality there is something there um without this one cannot start the spiritual path and without this one cannot be sustained on the spiritual path so you feel it is there it's worthwhile god exists it's worthwhile to believe in god and have faith in god brahman atman is the reality it's not just a f- clever philosophy it is that it's worthwhile to make an effort to realize it in my life that is faith you've got it also very specifically the traditional definition says faith in the teachings of the texts the scriptures and the guru shastra guru so what the texts are telling me a text a body of knowledge in general sense and in vedanta of course the upanishads gita brahma sutras especially the upanishads what they are telling us so faith in that that must be true why faith because i don't know yet there's a difference between knowing and faith right now you are you sitting in the vedanta society of new york you will say yes so do you know it or believe it say i know it it's not a question of believing it it would be very odd to say i believe i'm sitting in the vedanta society of new york <laughs> no you know it uh, knowledge has given you you have got knowledge that you are here right now um if your name is joe and i ask you what's your name joe you said and I ask you do you believe it or do you know it and i know it you don't you don't say i i believe my name is joe <laughs> no but when we don't know it when i cannot honestly say that i know god or i know that i am brahman i, I honestly I, it's not a living realization for me in that case i have to say i believe it to be so let me pursue this and that's how all um education works you go to columbia enroll for a physics course and and then what the professor tells you at first you accept it as a here is an expert talking about his field here are the textbooks um, which are vetted and the best textbooks in the market i take them to be true now let me try to understand i don't start off by saying this person is a hoax and the textbooks are all false news no fake news <laughs> the textbook textbooks are not fake news and this person is uh, the professor is is not not a hoax so you have a faith there to begin with you must have a faith and that faith will it's natural sort of and the whole system gives us a certain faith in such people and such bodies of knowledge similarly i have a faith in the guru and the vedantic texts but they're saying must be true it seems to have worked for a lot of people and so it's a kind of working faith not believe in it and that's it there's nothing more to be done no believe in it so that you can investigate it and see for yourself not just vedanta not just advaita yoga also patanjali yoga there the approach is uh, you you believe first you have a faith that this will work and then practice and you'll get the results whether it's meditation or hatha yoga asanas you're supposed to practice it and you'll get the results you'll see for yourself Uh, so this is faith as traditionally defined little further faith also means confidence in oneself what kind of confidence twofold one is i am a good person 
Second, I'm a competent person. See, there's a lot of uh, implications for our secular life also, not just spiritual life. Where does this come from? Notice what Nachiketa said when his father told him that yeah, I give thee to death, go to the house of death. Nachiketa thinks to himself that Bahunamemi Pratamo, Bahunamemi Madhyama. Among many of the boys here, the students here, I am the best in many things. I am sort of middling in others. In no case am I the worst. I'm a good person, I'm a capable person. These two aspects. When I have the self-image of myself as a good person, as a moral person, then uh, it's much easier for me to stick to a, to a moral, ethical path. I clearly define myself, my values. I am um, what Kavi calls a principle-centered life. Life-centered not on money, and not on relationships, um, not on pleasure seeking, not on enmity. Some people define their lives by <laughs> enemies. There's this great uh, painter, Picasso in fact, and he was in, in Paris at one time, and he wrote a harsh um, comment about another painter. And Somebody said, he never said the slightest thing against you. Why are you saying these things? It's unfair. He said, ah, but to do great work, I need great enemies. I want to make that guy hate me. Then I will fight against him. Then I can produce great art. art. <laughs> so that's a bit ridiculous. But that's an enemy-centered kind of life. Um, or work-centered life. We are in Manhattan. Work-centered life. I'm sure half of you <laughs> have that at least. Uh, no, none of them are right. And all of them will lead to unhappiness and lack of fulfillment. A principle-centered life. A value-centered life. Principle is a good word. Ethics or moral cent morality-centered life. That's, the, that's what comes out of understanding myself as fundamentally a good, decent, moral person. The second aspect of it is competent person. I am able to do this. I have tackled most situations in life till now. Let me face this. I'll be able to do it. I'll, I'll face it. There is a psychologist here in America, uh, Bandura, Albert Bandura. He defined it as, he coined the term self-efficacy. And he said, children, students who have this um, um, self-efficacy, they differ from others. In what sense? You're faced with a tough maths question. A child who has self-efficacy, who feels I can tackle this, will hold on and try. The child who does not, who gets scared, who doesn't have this uh, confidence in himself or herself, moment, the first attempt, it sees, I don't understand it, quickly go on to the next question. We have all faced this in our maths examinations, you know. So, the um, persistence will come out of the sense of competence. Engagement of all my faculties, let me give it a good try. With all my capacities. Where does this come from? This comes from a certain sense of confidence, of having tackled problems in life, having overcome a certain sense of comp competence in one's capacities. It's developed in childhood. It's an important insight that uh, Albert Bandura said. So children uh, building up their self-esteem, their confid uh, confidence and capacities. Not just I'm a nice boy or nice girl, but a capable boy or girl. I can take care of myself, I can take care of others. These two together are part of Shraddha. Swami Vivekananda says, self-confidence. He gave tremendous importance in self-confidence. There is no spirituality 
no psychology nothing in the world can help you unless you have confidence in yourself unless you are willing to change i have confidence in myself i can make a better life for myself the whole difference between the villain duryodhana and the hero arjun and the mahabharata lies on this difference those who know the story krishna goes to the villain before the war and tells him what you are doing is wrong this is not dharma this is adharma come to the right path and what was the answer that duryodhana gave him he said i know what's right you don't have to tell me that i know what's dharma i know what's adharma but what's dharma my problem is what's right i don't feel like doing it <laughs> what's wrong i can't stop myself from doing it okay and then why not he says there's some force within me he didn't know freudian psychoanalysis he could have blamed it on the id or the subconscious or something like there's some force within me which forces me to do it, do this i'm helpless i can't do anything else this is this is the way it is that's what makes him a villain and arjuna has the same problem he asks in the gita what is it anichchanna pivashne o krishna even unwillingly why is a person what does the person do wrong things why are we not unable to we why are we unable to do what we know to be right there's no urge to do that there is no um, you know the great joy in going ahead on the right path we know it's right no no desire uh, we know it's wrong can't stop myself and that's the human predicament but what's the difference between the villain and the hero arjuna the hero asks krishna how do i change please help me please teach me duryodhana never said that and krishna never opens his mouth unless you are asked unless he is asked okay uh so confidence in oneself faith in oneself as good person competent person one more point um faith in god and faith in oneself what's uh, the connection or god you make it a general term atman brahman vedanta buddhism whatever it is faith in that and faith in oneself i found the answer in mahatma gandhi in one letter he writes this is only those who have faith in themselves can have faith in god it's a very in- important point if i really don't believe myself anything else that i believe will also have a question mark on it i'll be shaky about everything yeah good question um there was a gentleman who raised his hand please come here that will be the last question Tell us your name and ask the question. Yeah, Pranam Swamiji. I'm Rajiv from London. From London. Uh, yeah. Okay, Canada or the U- UK? London. UK. UK. The okay. first one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I. The reason I'm asking was, a uh, couple of years back, as uh, two or three years back, I was invited to the, uh, come to London and give this talk. I said, "No, it's too far. I can't do that. I need a visa and all of that." Then he said, "No, no, not that London. This is just across the border. <laughs> It's across the border in in Canada." Uh, and one more, a uh, couple of years back at Harvard, I saw you know, people would visit. They would all be impressed. Harvard and going around and all of that. Only one person I ever met was not impressed. this lady who came was walking around there and, and with a group of friends and I happened to meet this group and they introduced themselves they were all students there they said we are showing our friend around this lady is a professor um and uh, i said oh really where do you teach and she said cambridge the real one <laughs> 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 yes 
So the real London. Yeah, the real London. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned psychoanalysis because I was going to ask you if there's any any useful overlap in your view between psychotherapy and Advaita Vedanta. And someone recommended that I read Joseph Campbell a little while ago, and it's very interesting that he puts both psychotherapy and Vedanta on very, very, very high pedestals. And and maybe linked to that is, is there any meaning to be found in our, in the contents of our dreams? All right. A good question. Joseph Campbell, let's start with the end. Campbell was right here in New York. And he used to go to the uh, other center, the East Side Center. He was a disciple of Swami Nikhilanandaji. And that's where he got his Vedanta from. And there's an interesting story, as you know. Um, Joseph Campbell knew George Lucas. And he told George Lucas about Vedanta. And you see a lot of that in the Star Wars movies. Uh, there are even talks on Star Wars and Vedanta. And, jo- and our um, um, Professor Jeffrey Long, he actually <laughs> gave a talk here. The, the yoga of Yoda. <laughs> so it goes a long way back. I mean, uh, there's a lot of Joseph Campbell in the story of Luke Skywalker and all of that. And Joseph Campbell got most of these ideas from um, uh, from Swami Nikhilanandaji and Vedanta. He did a very thorough study of Vedanta. And I read his diaries, um, Bakshish and Brahman. He went to India in the 1950s. And he paints an, quite an unflattering picture of India. But he also says that this, this great beauty and power underneath, he says in those days, he calls it a river of fields and there's a beauty underneath that. <laughs> there's, um, so he, yeah, so he does say uh, that there is a deep connection between psychoanalysis and Vedanta. Going further back, Carl Jung. Freud himself, for all his powerful insights, was quite dismissive of spirituality. Max Muller actually wrote to Freud about Sri Ramakrishna. And he describes their letters are there. And uh, not Max Muller, sorry. Roma Rola. Roma Rola. Uh, he wrote to Freud. There are letters in which Freud actually admits to being puzzled by Sri Ramakrishna. He says he doesn't do an immediate, whatever a modern psychoanalyst would do, an immediate psychoanalytic <laughs> uh, dissection of Sri Ramakrishna. No. He, he admits to being actually puzzled by Sri Ramakrishna. Um, but Carl Jung was highly appreciative. Um, he said that there's a lot of interface between Vedanta and uh, 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 yoga also. Vedanta, yoga and the insights of psychoanalysis. So he was very open to spirituality. He went to India. He went to Belurmat, our main monastery in India. Carl Jung did. And uh, him, I think he also met Ramana Maharshi, Carl Jung, if I'm not wrong. Um, okay. Now, what's my view on this? In our order, there are two schools of thought on this. Not just psychoanalysis, but modern psychology and spirituality. One is a very traditional uh, approach. Some senior monks are there who say, don't. Um, spirituality will take care of your problems and solve them at every level. So you don't have to go to a therapist. You don't have to go to do psychoanalysis of yourself. In fact, one representative of this school of thought was Swami Ashokanandaji, whom I admire a lot and I read a lot. It's long before my time. He was in the Vedanta Society of Northern California. I still remember. He says... 
At that time, psychoanalysis was all the rage. Everybody had his or her own therapist here, in, especially in New York and all over the United States. This was in the 1950s and 60s. So Swami Ashokanji scolds his audience. He says, you go to a psychoanalyst, he will uh, uh, disintegrate you and reintegrate you until you are a mass of patchwork. <laughs> so the way out is, uh, is prayer, meditation, spirituality and ethical, moral life and so on. And Carl Jung himself says, he says, in all my clients, in, he says patients, uh, who are middle-aged and above, he says for, for them, the source of their pathology is the divorce from their church. So the divorce between, he was talking about Christians there in Europe. This dropping away from religion, spirituality, this leads to a deep mental problem in, in humanity. Whatever your spiritual, some deep spiritual um, grounding must be there in one of the great spiritual traditions of humanity. It must be there. So, um, the other group of, uh, this is one group of monks say this, no, not necessary. The other group to which I uh, subscribe and one of my uh, masters there in, in the monastery, Swami Bhajanandi, a very luminous mind, very well read in psychology. He said, why not psychology? Why not psychoanalysis and, uh, and the modern positive psychology? The point he made was, if you are taking medicine for your physical body, go to a doctor and take medicine. You can take help from uh, a counselor or, or a psychologist if you have uh, mental issues. Isn't it Vedanta itself which says it's a physical body and a mental body? Gross body, that is Stula Sharira, Sukshma Sharira, subtle body. It's not you. You can benefit from that. And the second thing he said was, Swami Bhajananji, he, told, he said was, look, most of our problems are not spiritual problems. When we come to spiritual life, we come with a host of psychological issues. Born of our own inner psychology, born of relationship issues, financial pressures, so many things, so many pressures are there on the human being in modern society. So, um, you can very well benefit from psychology. Another point this Swami made was that in recent times, last 20, 30 years, 30 years, there's been a flowering of positive psychology in the United States, going back especially to the time of uh, Seligman, Ma Martin Seligman, when he was the president of the American Psychology Association. So you see the importance of uh, money and grants and all of that. So he was the president. He was very interested in positive psychology. So he, uh, he said that he, I funneled a lot of grants and you know, research opportunities in this field and it led to an explosion of interest in this field. And now you have textbooks on positive psychology, you have courses in positive psychology, you have uh, professors who teach that only, positive psychology. There are graduate students working on this. Now this Swami said, now psychology is even more useful for people on spiritual path. Why? See, psychoanalysis, the problem was in spite of deep insights. The problem was multiple. One problem was it investigated only the darker reaches of human nature. Naturally, because it was meant as a, uh, as a treatment, as a therapy. So the people who came to you were people who were suffering. Uh, Swami Pavitranandaji, actually, who was uh, here in the Vedanta Society of New York, he has this dialogue with Carl Jung 
where he asks Carl Jung that why do you do only that? It's like only looking at the basement of a building, not nothing else. And Jung answers that he says, "Yes, correct. You are right. It's just the way our subject has developed. But you are right. There are other reaches of human nature, higher reaches of human nature." And other psychologists like Maslow and others, they took up the uh, task. But right now it's a big thing. And the Swami told me that right now, if you're a spiritual seeker and if you're interested, you don't have to dive into psychology, but if you're interested, there's a lot that can help you. Um, Seligman himself, very beautiful. He's a very humorous man. <laughs> so he uh, said that, it's a joke, it didn't really happen. He said that uh, the CNN came to interview me about this new positive psychology and what it can do for humanity. And he said... We're going to interview, ask you about psychology, Professor. And Professor Seligman said, okay, great. But remember, this is cable news. And you get, you have to be very precise. You can't give a lecture. So, okay, how many words do I get? So one word. <laughs> Joke. And this is all right. Roll, cameras, action. And um, Professor, what is the state of psychology today? And he said, good. <laughs> And they said, cut, cut, no, 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 this won't do. You have to explain a little more. Okay, how many words do I get this time? Two words. All right, cameras, action. Professor, what's the state of psychology today? He said, not good. <laughs> what do you mean? He <laughs> just said it's good, he said, not good. No, no, you have to explain more. You get three words this time. Professor, what's the state of psychology today? And he said, not good enough. Not good enough. And then he says, see, we have been all along trying to take people from minus five to zero. That's, that's what we have been doing in psychology. But why, why not from zero to plus five? Medicine is not just for sick people. Medicine is also sports medicine for, for extraordinary people also. So similarly, can psychology help us to lead a more fulfilled life, a happier life? What about character? What about resilience? What about peace of mind? What about satisfaction with life? So many areas uh, where psychology can actually help a lot. So that was the movement. The Swami told me, so since this has developed and is developing now a lot, you can see a lot of things which are foundational for spirituality, not the advanced reaches of spirituality. There's no higher yoga or Advaita Vedanta there in positive psychology, but foundational about an ethical life, a fulfilled life, a, a well-formed ego. Even before you get rid of the ego, you must have a well-formed ego. Not very egotistic, but well-formed, balanced ego. All of this, modern positive psychology can help you. I think that's all I would like to say about this. Thank you, though. Uh, I think we have really run out of time. Thank you so much. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu